A reading from 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that for all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in, when God called them. The word of the Lord. Did you know that only about 5% of pastors in American Protestant churches are unmarried, even though 44% of the U.S. population is unmarried? I have a friend, graduated from seminary, who is single but didn't apply for a job for which he was otherwise qualified because the job description required that he be married. Now, the preference for married individuals in the church is usually not stated so overtly, 
But there is this underlying assumption that we feel that if you were just a better Christian, you would get married. Now, is this biblical? Catholics certainly don't think so. They have an overwhelming preference for unmarried leaders in their church. Does Jesus have a preference for the married or any other kind of person? You know, you can probably get into the kingdom if you're not a young, put-together, middle-class, married, and never-divorced person, but just to be safe, you should probably try for that. It's God's favorite. Or at the very least, every message that we hear from church culture says that it's our favorite. In this morning's passage, Paul answers questions regarding whether relationship status makes one a better kind of Christian. We still struggle with those questions. Church, we have not gotten this one right yet. And we need to hear the gospel that Paul is going to speak into our lives this morning. This is a tricky passage, though. A few reasons. First, we always tend to squirm just a little bit when we talk about sex in church. Second, Paul makes a few statements that are going to sound troublesome to our modern perspective. Um, I wish that Paul had anticipated a little bit more our 21st century sensibilities and phrased things a little bit differently, but we can work through that. Third, a number of verses in this chapter have been taken out of context and have been abused by Christians throughout the years. And so 1 Corinthians 7 is a minefield for us. That being said, I appreciate what Paul is doing here. Professor Paul, for just a moment, sits down, and Pastor Paul is going to stand up, and he's going to roll up his sleeves and stick his hands into the muddy waters of real life and help us understand what it means to live out the implications of the gospel in the muddy waters of real life when things aren't so clear-cut. If we listen to the tone of Professor Paul giving black and white commands, then we'll either be frustrated because it doesn't seem to apply to us, or we'll become legalistic, trying to obey it to the letter, even when the situation doesn't fit. And so I invite you this morning into the ambiguity of real life. Um, This may be frustrating to some of you who just want to know what to do, but I hope that we can wrestle this morning with the implications of the gospel for every aspect of our lives. So let's start by looking at the structure of chapter 7. Verses 1 through 16 are practical teaching on Christian families, mostly involving marriage. Verses 25 through 40 are practical teaching on Christian relationships and families, mostly involving singleness. And then right in the middle, verses 17 through 24, you have some other principles that are at work here. The structure is called a chiasm. It's when the author starts with one topic and then moves to a second topic and then comes back to some version of that first topic again. And when an author uses chiasm in their structure, they're trying to point you to the middle part of that. And so whatever is going on in verses 17 through 24, that's where Paul is trying to bring our attention to. And so we're going to try to understand what's going on in the middle of the passage. Then we're going to take it back up and apply it to the instructions on marriage, and then next week we're going to apply those principles to the instructions on singleness. Paul is writing to new believers who are trying to figure out hard questions of faith and practice, and one of the big questions that they had is, what are the implications for my family when I convert to Christianity? 
They knew that Christianity requires a radical shift in our allegiances, and even Jesus himself said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And some were asking, if I have become a part of God's family, should I abandon my earthly family as a result? It's a valid question. How radically does the gospel change our lives? I think we would do well to ask that question about more parts of our lives. How radically does the gospel change my relationship with my parents or with my coworkers or with my wife? How radically does the gospel change the way that I do my grocery shopping or that I do my work or that I do my banking or anything? How radically does the gospel change our lives? Paul's answer to the question, particularly on relationships, is repeated three times in verses 17, 20, and 24. He says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Believers don't sever all connections from their previous life and live in some kind of Jesus huddle. They should stay where they are and become a Christian presence there because God wants to change society by seeding Christians in all of society's institutions especially the family. Now, if I want to take a blank patch of soil and turn it into a garden, how do I do that? Well, I plant seeds. I don't plant just one kind of seed, but a variety of seeds. And I don't plant them in just one place. I plant them all over the soil. And then they grow into plants. And then in the course of weeks and months, those plants grow. And the next thing you know, you have a garden. I believe that this is God's plan for bringing the kingdom here on earth. He seeds Christians all over the place, not just one kind of Christian, but a variety of different kinds of people. And he puts them not just in one place, but all over the place. And it seems like it's slow and inefficient, but over the course of weeks and months and years and decades, all of a sudden, those people are growing up in the place where God has planted them. They're talking about Jesus and their circles of influence. And the next thing you know, the world looks a little bit more like God wants it to look like. Now, this verse doesn't mean that you can never change anything about your life. Whether Paul is talking about marriage or singleness or divorce or even slavery, Paul gives exceptions to each general principle. He's being nuanced here. This is not a command about your future. It's an encouragement about your present state. Um, you are invited right now to see your present life stage as a unique position from which to influence the world for Christ. Paul's going to use two illustrations to clarify this. The first illustration is circumcision. Verses 18 through 19 say, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now, Paul frequently attacks Judaizers. These were uh, Jews who converted to Christianity, but they believed that in order to be truly saved, you had to follow all of the Old Testament law, including circumcision. Now, there were Gentiles who were converting to Christianity who found this objectionable for obvious enough reasons, but Paul found this objectionable for other reasons. 
Paul knows that you don't need Jesus and the law. You don't need Jesus and circumcision in order to be saved. And so he goes on the attack against these people who are trying to corrupt the gospel. And now he's comparing that to our relationships. You don't need Jesus and a spouse. You don't need Jesus and to be single. Jesus is enough, and he has called all sorts of believers together to represent his kingdom here on earth. The second illustration that Paul uses is slavery. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. This is one of those verses that has been grossly abused and misused throughout Christian history, saying that Paul endorses slavery here. It's not what he's doing. He is saying that if you find yourself today in slavery to another person, there is nothing that keeps you from living out your Christian faith in the midst of that. Slavery itself may be wrong, but God can work powerfully through slaves. I believe that some of the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who never received their freedom, but who continued to work for the kingdom, who gave us our modern understanding of civil rights, even though they never benefited from that same understanding. And so my question to you is, would you be content to be such a person, to work for the kingdom of God in ways that you will personally never benefit from? Now, I suspect that not many of us in this room have experienced slavery, but I do know of people with cancer or MS, or depression, or chronic pain, who continue to serve God powerfully. Same for paraplegics, or divorced individuals, or parents who've lost a child or couldn't have a child in the first place, or victims of abuse, all of whom daily grieve their circumstances, but who nonetheless press forward to make the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. Being single when you wish you were married being married and wishing like anything you could get out of it, those are all circumstances in which to live out God's commands in the kingdom. Paul was put in prison. Instead of complaining to God about that, he preaches to the prison guards. And so my question to you is, who are the prison guards in your life that you can preach to? Who are the people that are in your life, that are in your circle of influence, that you can influence for Christ, that wouldn't be there were it not for the negative circumstances of your life? This passage is about sex and marriage and singleness, but even more so, it is a passage about missions. It is about God's plan to use believers who remain faithful and exhibit sexual integrity in their marriages and in their singleness in order to bring about the kingdom of God. Next month, we start Perspectives. Uh, The big idea of Perspectives is that we should see everything we do through God's plan to bring the kingdom here on earth. The way you live in your family, among your friends, at work, all plays a role in God's mission. And so if you want to learn more about this, I urge you to sign up for that. And that's Paul's point here, too. What we do with our sex lives and our relationships and every other part of our lives plays a role in God's mission. So these principles form the foundation for Paul's teaching on marriage in this chapter. 
God doesn't prefer the married to the single or vice versa or any other label that we may try to put on people. You can serve God whatever your life status is, so don't worry about making dramatic life changes. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. And if you have ever heard the message from our church that you are a second-class citizen in God's kingdom, I apologize for that. We can all have a dramatic impact on our culture by staying true to Christ where he has called us. So I think we could summarize verses 17 through 24 as, be content with your current life stage because God is your hope and wants to use you to change society from the inside out. Verses 17 through 24 form the heart of this chapter. Now we'll see how Paul applies this to the Corinthians' questions on relationships. So let's go back up to the top of the chapter. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What a way to start off a chapter. That phrase is probably a quote from some of the Corinthian believers. They knew of some of Jesus' teaching, like I mentioned before, and they knew that Jesus and Paul were unmarried, and they assumed that maybe Christians should not be married, or at the very least, if they were married, they should not have sex with each other. We knew from chapters 5 and 6 as well that there was sexual immorality happening in the church. And so in the Corinthian church, you've got this mixture of all these different things. You've got the culture telling you to do whatever it is that you want. You've got other people in here who are responding with the exact opposite of that. And right in the middle, you've got all these other believers who are caught in the crosshairs trying to figure out, what do I do with my relationships? How are they affected by the gospel? Paul's going to address his response to three different groups. He'll have believers who are married to other believers, believers who are married to non-believers, and then those who are unmarried. I'll address the first two of those groups this morning, and then next week we'll pick up on unmarried individuals. So we'll start with Paul's answer to married couples in which both spouses are believers. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Husband and wife have become one flesh, and they should act like it. Um, As such, in doing so, though, they give up some of their autonomy over their own body. Now, here's another of those verses that has been abused throughout the years. Um, It has been abused traditionally, although not exclusively, by husbands who demand that their wives meet every sexual demand, no matter how they're feeling, no matter how they've been treated. But Paul does not allow for that here. He says husbands and wives yield to each other Your body is a freely given gift. This is about your denial for the benefit of another, never another's denial for the benefit of yourself. And anytime you want to use this verse to mean that, you are so far off the intent of this passage that I suggest you start from square one on it. Um, If there is a pattern from one or both spouses never wanting to have sex, you don't resort to demands you communicate about ways that you can mutually engage the process of reconnecting with each other. 
You see, notice the great lengths Paul goes to to show that husband and wife are equal partners in the marriage. The wife yields to the husband and the husband yields to the wife. There's this scandalous mutuality to Christian marriages. It's this dance in which each partner is trying to outdo the other in terms of serving, loving, and submitting to the other. It is hard work to live out this mutuality in marriage. M.T. Wright puts it this way, working out what this means in the day-to-day and year-to-year rhythms and routines of family life, especially when one or both partners are under pressure at work or with children, is part of what the joy and the discipline of married life is all about. So if you are married, work hard to live out the joy and the discipline of your marriage. Learn to communicate with each other. Be kind to each other and not harsh. Find time to connect with each other. I heard about an app that reminds you to talk to and appreciate your spouse throughout the day. Whatever works. Um, Paul references two purposes for sex in a marriage. These are the reasons why it is so important to him that husbands and wife act like husband and wife. The first is very pragmatic. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. See, regular sex with your spouse prevents your mind and body from wandering to other desires. Now, next week, we're going to address the very important topic of how singles can express and not ignore or suppress their sexuality while still maintaining sexual integrity. But if you are married and physically capable, there's no excuse. Um, If you feel like it, great. And if you don't, don't be content to just stay there. Address the root causes that may be at the lack of the feeling. Communicate with each other and look for ways that you can reconnect. When a marriage becomes sexless, a whole host of temptations are allowed to enter into that marriage. So I have a soft spot in my heart for Taco Bell. I uh, know it's not good for me, and I also know that it's even just not good food in general compared (laughs) to real tacos. Um, But I like it. And I've tried on a number of different instances to break my Taco Bell uh, addiction, And I've discovered two main strategies for doing that. The first is to just quit cold turkey, pretend like Taco Bell doesn't even exist. But that's pretty difficult because there's one on every corner, and the more I ignore it, the more I crave it until I eventually give in. The second strategy is to eat more real tacos. If I eat better food, and if I see that there are healthy, good-tasting alternatives out there, I will wonder why I ever craved the imitation in the first place. I think it's the same with sex. The more we are honest about our sexuality and fill our lives with the real thing as God intended, that is sex within the protections of a marriage covenant, the less we are tempted to satisfy our desires with imitation intimacy. The second purpose of marriage sex is implied in the passage. It's to point others to God. You see, when Christian couples are faithful to and intimate with each other, the lies that the world tells us about sex are laid bare. It is possible to be faithful to one person for the rest of your life and be sexually satisfied. We force those around us who are pursuing bigger and better sexual experiences to come face to face with the truth that it is not satisfying them, that what they really desire is to be known, to be totally bare in front of another person and to be accepted warts and all 
uh, for who it is that they are. And when they are running from that uh, covenant aspect of sex, what they are really doing is running from the true intimacy that they desire. And so sex done right points the world to a God who loves us, warts and all, inside and out, knows everything about us, and still desires the deepest intimacy with us and will be forever faithful to us. God has seeded Christian marriages throughout society in order to point a lost and wandering world to the hope that we all, whether single or married, have in Jesus Christ as the true satisfaction of our souls. But the culture tells us that if you like someone, then go ahead and have sex. If it feels good, it couldn't possibly have consequences as well. Besides, you couldn't possibly know whom to marry unless you have sex first. It's no big deal, but it's also the pinnacle of human experience somehow. And so we live in this highly sexualized culture that is as aggressive as it is confused about its message. We also have an American Christian culture that does not know how to respond. And sometimes all the church can manage to say is don't do it. And so sex becomes a dirty word that we can't have any meaningful dialogue about. If you even think about sex, then shame on you. The church is often better at telling people what not to do than at casting a compelling vision for what God created sexuality to be. And so our churches, like Corinth, are full of people who are forced to navigate for themselves in secrecy and shame their beliefs about sex, constantly pulled between the culture who tells them to do whatever we want and the church that says sex is dirty except maybe to procreate, and even then let's pretend like a stork brought your kids to you. We have not been given good tools to navigate hard questions. And so when we are single, every force inside of us tells us to pursue sex outside of marriage. And that's why cohabitation and hookups and pornography are pandemics in our society. We don't know what else to do with our desires. And when we're married, we're still tempted. And that's why divorce and adultery are pandemics in our society. Sex with real intimacy is difficult. It requires communication, yielding to another person, sacrifice, practice, forgiveness, patience. It requires you to be laid completely bare, inside and out, before another person. And when that is too vulnerable for us, we run to cheap alternatives. I hate returning things to the store. Uh, you know how you go to Target and they always ask you, was there anything wrong with the product? And I always feel this urge to say, it's not you, it's me. And so rather than do that, I will settle for this soap dish that I didn't realize has a big scary bird on it or this t-shirt that bears my midriff because I don't want to disappoint some target cashier who is most certainly not paid enough to care what I think about their merchandise. In all of life, we settle because we are afraid of vulnerability. Nowhere more so than with sex, this most intimate act. And so rather than celebrate the vulnerability and intimacy in the context of a covenant marriage, we settle for a fake connection through a screen, through hookups, even moving in together, but always with the option of leaving at a moment's notice, free of all the vulnerability and intimacy that actually gives sex the meaning we were looking for in the first place. And so if you are married, work on your marriage, work on your sex life and all that goes with it, that requires communicating about everything in the marriage. 
So my wife and I have a check-in once a week where we sit down and we make sure that we're checking in and seeing how the other person's doing. Um, that helps us talk about things before they have enough time to get too big and to connect with each other even when life is hectic. Practice vulnerability. Practice receiving your spouse's vulnerability. Practice yielding to your partner when you don't feel like it, and not just sexually, in all ways. Invest in your friendship with your spouse. Have fun. Go on dates. Pick up a hobby together. Go on a trip. Spend time together just enjoying each other's company. If you have to schedule time together in order to make it happen, then put it on the calendar. Let's start there. Do whatever it takes to fight for your marriage. You will avoid many temptations, not all of them, but a lot of them, and you will show the world that there is a God who desires complete and total intimacy with each of us. And so if you are married, be content to remain present in your marriage. Make it strong so that you can show the world that God is your hope and the hope of the world. And when we commit ourselves to seeding society with strong Christian marriages, we participate with God in changing society from the inside out. So Paul has applied his main truth, which is remain as you were when you were called, to two married believers. In verses 8 through 9, we're actually going to come back to that next week. And then starting in verse 10, he addresses the situation when a person converts to Christianity and their spouse does not. There was no precedent for how to deal with this situation. The church was so new. And so they tried to look for other places to find some wisdom on this. And they saw that Jesus taught that you should follow him at all costs, casting off some relationships that don't foster your pursuit of him. And the Corinthian believers looked at again, Paul and Jesus, and saw that they were unmarried. And they said, well, okay, if both spouses are believers, yeah, they can, they can help each other. But if not, then maybe, um, this is the question they're asking Paul, maybe uh, you should divorce so that the believer can either pursue Jesus fully as a single or marry someone with shared Christian convictions. Before we get to Paul's answer to that question, I want to point out one curious phrase here. It's in verse 12 where Paul says, basically, this is not the Lord talking, it's me. Wait, is that scripture? Is that, does God not agree with that? What's, is that authoritative for our lives? What, what do we do with something like that? Well, earlier Paul has quoted Jesus on the issue of divorce, and we'll look at that in a second. But now Paul is saying, Jesus didn't give a very specific command about this particular situation. And so I am trying to immerse myself in the worldview of Scripture. I'm trying to think, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? And I'm trying to apply it. But we're going to have to think for ourselves on this particular issue because Jesus' words and the Bible do not specifically give us instructions about what to do. And so being a Christian means learning to think about all these things over here that are clear in Scripture, but it also means learning to think about all of these things over here that aren't clear. Paul is giving us permission to think about this, to immerse ourselves in the worldview of Scripture, and to try to live out what we think God's plan is in new situations that we come across. Back to the main point of the text. Paul's teaching here, as it has been throughout the chapter, is to remain in the state you were in when you were called, including a marriage with an unbeliever. And he has two primary reasons for this. First, divorce is destructive. Jesus says that a husband and wife become one flesh at their marriage, and breaking that one flesh back up into two is like an amputation. 
Now, Jesus will permit divorce and remarriage in the case of infidelity, and Paul permits it later on in this chapter in the case of the unbelieving spouse wanting to leave the marriage. And I would argue that there are similar situations that aren't explicitly mentioned, such as abuse. And so divorce may sometimes be a valid response, but it is always the most extreme of the responses that are available. And so if I stub my toe and the doctor tells me to get my leg amputated, I'm finding a new doctor. But when marriage gets hard and our culture tells us to amputate that one flesh, then we've got a problem. And I think it's time that we find new doctors in our culture. Divorce is to be saved for those situations in which no amount of hard work can heal the rift. Don't embark on it lightly. Then Paul states that if you do opt for divorce, you should remain single in the hopes of reconciliation. Okay, here's a place where a lot of people hear Professor Paul giving a black and white rule that we have to absolutely stay true to. I think this is Pastor Paul who is giving us general principles to live by. I don't believe that those who divorce and remarry are living in some kind of perpetual sin. And if so, are they in sin until they divorce their new spouse? Is, is another divorce the way to heal divorce in our culture? I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that this is some kind of unforgivable sin as it's often treated in churches. The principle here is to avoid divorce if at all possible, to seek reconciliation if you are divorced, and if none of those things are possible, to receive God's grace for the next step of your life. Always full of the redemptive power of the cross. When I was nine, my parents sat me down and told me that they could not be married anymore. And in a flash, my story changed in ways that I had no control over and that were not my fault. After a few months of being separated, my parents came back together again. And they said, we don't want divorce to be our story. They gave marriage another try, this time with the help of the church. And it turns out they could actually be married to each other. They just needed better tools. Fight for your marriages. It's okay to ask for help. If it is at all within your power, don't let divorce be your story. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for this world that is looking in and asking, does Jesus really make a difference? God would have given me the grace to get through my parents' divorce, but I am so thankful he didn't have to. Have you heard the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, including for Christians? Well, it turns out it is neither true nor based on actual research. Uh, Shanti Feldhahn, who's a Harvard-trained researcher, conducted an eight-year study on marriage, and she discovered that the divorce rate for first-time marriages is about 25%, and for Christian couples, it's about half that. Feldhahn also found that if you're going through a rocky patch in your marriage and you commit to staying together for just five years, then 80% of couples at the end of those five years will be happy in their marriage again. Your faith and your community give you tools to help your marriage. And so as a community, let's rally around each other. Let's ask each other how our marriages are going and let's help each other stay married. So the first reason that believers are called to stay with unbelieving spouses is because divorce should be avoided in all but the most extreme circumstances. Verses 14 and 16 give us the second reason 
for staying in the marriage. It says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, Paul uses terms like sanctify and save in ways that are outside of the narrow way that we have come to think of them today. He doesn't mean that you can actually save another person into heaven. Uh, That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can influence our families, and we can have a great influence on our families from the inside of them. And so Paul says, whatever your family situation is, you should prefer, if it was in your power, to stay within that and to have an influence for Christ in the middle of that situation. So this ties back to Paul's point that we should prefer to stay in our current situation because we can be a unique influence that other people can't be. Other people aren't inside our families. We are. And so we should stay there and influence them. I've known several people who have led an unbelieving spouse to Christ. Uh, My grandmother was married to my grandfather for 50 years before he made a decision for Christ. And her faithfulness is a powerful example. There are, of course, no guarantees, and that's part of the messiness of what marriage is. Um, But faithfulness and obedience in the midst of that always makes some kind of difference. So in general, be content to remain in your life situation, especially regarding marriage. And in doing so, we make society look more like what God wants it to look like, starting from the inside and working out. So let's come back to the question we started with. How dramatically does the gospel change my life? And Paul's answer, both less than and more than than you think it's going to. Don't look for it to immediately affect your relationship status or your job or your culture or even your situations of suffering. But it is concerned, the gospel is concerned with our hearts how we treat others, our level of contentment with God, our ability to see God at work in every situation. That's the radical change. That's how we become forces of change on the world from the inside out. You are not too small to impact the world. Small things make a difference. Uh, Sometimes when you try to sell your house, then the realtor will tell you to have cookies baking in the oven when prospective buyers come by. And the reason for that is that that smell of cookies in the house changes how a prospective buyer would see the entire house. Now, if that tub of cookie dough stays in the refrigerator, it's not going to make any influence at all. But if you take that and you put it in the oven, then it can change the way that someone sees the entire house. We have each been put in a unique situation. And if we try to fight that, and if we say, no, I wish I were in this situation, then we abdicate our role in God's kingdom mission to make the world look more like God wants it to look like. When we are content to stay in that situation, then God uses that small act of obedience to impact how the world sees the church and God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't try to get married or change jobs or create a world in which there is less suffering. What it does mean is that that change probably won't happen today and it probably won't happen tomorrow. And today and tomorrow are still days to live out God's kingdom without making a life change. We, as we have been called today, are in a place to influence the world for Jesus. So, if you have found contentment in your life situation, 
and you can see the unique way that God has placed you where you are in order to advance the kingdom, then I invite you to join me during our response time in singing, It Is Well With My Soul. If you're not quite ready to say that yet, that's okay. There'll be elders and prayer ministers up here at the front, and during our singing, you can come and pray with them. You can wrestle with them. You can confess to them. Whatever it is that you need to do, take this time now to respond to God.